Enki made his voice heard and spoke to the great gods. One god should be slaughtered, and the gods can be purified by immersion. Nintu shall mix clay with his flesh and his blood. Then a god and a man will be mixed together in clay. Let us hear the drumbeat forever after. Let a ghost come into existence from the god's flesh. Let her proclaim it as his living sign. And let the ghost exist so as not to forget the slain god. It's got to mix a god and a man together in the clay? That's incredible. They answered yes in the assembly. The great Anunnaki who assigned the fates. You're listening to The Drumbeat Forever After. It's a podcast about the Bronze Age in the Near East. I'm your host, Alex, and these are my guests. Uh, Kelton. Annika. And we're listening to Stephanie Daly's translation of Atrahasis, which is a creation myth written in the Akkadian language around 1600 BCE. It dates from the reign of Ami Saduka, king of Babylon in modern Iraq. He was the great-grandson of the more famous Hammurabi. We'll hear more of the story in a bit, but first I want to introduce this podcast. So our main focus is going to be the ancient Near East, starting around 10,000 BCE, at time of recording, I've written episodes up to about 2300 BCE. The goal is to talk about the Bronze Age, which is usually considered to last between about 3000 and 1200 BCE. So like I said, we're going to be focused on the Near East, otherwise known as the Middle East. We're going to focus on Mesopotamia, which is, of course, the area between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. In modern terms, we'll be centered on Iraq, northeastern Syria, and southeastern Turkey, along with the surrounding regions like Iran and the Persian Gulf. Starting in Season 2, we're going to focus on Southern Mesopotamia, otherwise known as Sumer, or Babylonia. This is the southeastern third of Iraq. And every episode is going to start and end with a myth or an ancient text. Most of them are going to be Sumerian mythology. Of course, we're going to spend most of our time in Sumer, but we'll also read some texts from some other ancient Near Eastern cultures. Generally, the quotes tend to be edited for length, clarity, and repetition. And then when we get to the historical periods where they actually write these texts, we'll take a deeper dive into the text themselves. So we'll talk about exactly what this podcast will cover in a bit, but first I want to talk about why it exists, because there are admittedly other podcasts about the ancient Near East. The short answer is that I was interested in the late Bronze Age collapse, but I wanted to start at the beginning, and I stupidly started 9,000 years earlier. Going into it, I had a very dim idea of what happened before about 2500 BCE, so I've spent a lot of time figuring that out. But the longer answer is that I'm interested in the origins of class society, and I wanted to track the evolution of permanent state institutions. So in other words, in about 10,000 BCE, all human societies were more or less egalitarian. They had no institutional government, they had no systemic social inequality, no kings, no slaves, no bosses, etc. But by the 2000s BCE, we see kings ruling kingdoms of tens of thousands of people. Temples employ hundreds or thousands of people, not only smiths and carpenters and sculptors and so on, but also slaves, overseers, and teams of manual workers paid in basic rations. So by historical times, Mesopotamian society is profoundly stratified. Palaces and temples will be massive institutional households that own huge tracts of farmland and parcel it out to their officials and employees. As always, the point of this land is to grow grain, mostly barley. In addition to grain from its own land, a temple or a palace will collect grain from the public as tribute, and the continued legitimacy of these big institutional households is based on their continued ability to collect, store, and disperse grain. Obviously, they need to pay their workers, primarily manual laborers like bricklayers, textile workers, construction crews, and so on but also, as I mentioned, artisans like potters, carpenters, and bronzesmiths. Major officials within these hierarchies will get huge tracts of land, and in return, they'll be expected to organize major labor projects, like maintaining canals, building temples, and military service. This is a way to outsource government functions to important people's friends, so we'll see that these institutional households are essentially patronage systems that collect from the public by force and distribute those goods among their cronies. To quote an old history professor of mine, the more things change, the more things stay the same. 
So professional scribes will be our only source for most of Mesopotamian history. These scribes had comfortable white-collar jobs near the top of the institutional hierarchy. In other words, most literate people in society were on the payroll of these major ideological institutions. So the vast majority of texts from Mesopotamia reflect this kind of institutional bias. For example, in the Atrahasis, which we're reading today, we see a class of lesser gods freed from manual labor and a new, more exploitable class of workers created to do that labor instead. And the greater gods commanding that labor get to keep their power. So in other words, by the time of our first texts, we see a world governed by powerful institutions. These institutions are hierarchical. They're run by a small minority of rich and powerful people. Like I said, they employ hundreds or thousands of people and dictate public policy. And ultimately, their goal is amassing more power and more wealth. So this podcast will try to figure out how that happened. That is, how people traded away their freedom and what they got in return. So let's look at what we'll cover in a little more detail. Season 1, or episodes 1 through 10, covers the Neolithic period. After episode 1, which of course we'll get to. Episodes 2 through 5 cover the pre-pottery Neolithic between about 9600 and 7000 BCE. This is when we see the first domestications of wheat, barley, lentils, and so on, as well as sheep, goats, cattle, and pigs. We will see a head cult, or a skull cult, that is a series of interesting rituals involving heads and skulls. And we're going to see small, homogenous villages grow large. A few of them will grow into Neolithic megasites. In episodes 6 through 10, we'll cover the pottery Neolithic between about 7000 and 5300 BCE. So, obviously, this is when they start making pottery. But also, we see these large sites break up into small villages of extended households. As people move apart, we see new ways of sharing culture across long distances, not only pottery decorations and styles of pottery, but also feasting traditions and burial rites. So, Season 2, Episodes 11 through 30, will cover the Calcolithic, focused on the period between about 5300 and 2900 BCE. This will be broken into four parts. So, Episodes 11 through 17 will cover the Ubaid and the late Calcolithic period, between about 6500 and 3800 BCE. This will bring us from the earliest settlement in southern Mesopotamia to the first city in Syria, that'll be Tel Brak. We'll see the first complex societies and the first monumental architecture. If you're looking for a good place to start, episode 17 is when we see the first city-state. Episodes 18 through 20 cover the Uruk expansion between about 3800 and 3100 BCE. This was a complex historical process where southern Mesopotamia exported its material culture across the Near East and imported natural resources from those same areas. So this might be a system of trade, it might be a kind of colonization, and it might speak to some other kind of political relationship. Mostly we're going to focus on Iran and Syria during this period. Episodes 21 through 26 will cover southern Mesopotamia during that same period, the Uruk period. So we're going to focus on the major cities in the Mesopotamian alluvium, especially Unug, also called Uruk, the largest city in southwestern Asia after about 3500 BCE. We're going to see the first writing, the first cities in the south. This is also when a whole bunch of stuff gets invented that will be important later on. Episodes 27 through 29 will cover the post-Uruk period after 3100 BCE. These episodes are currently under construction, so we'll see Mesopotamian cities remain after the Uruk trade network collapses. We'll see a similar trade network set up in southern Iran, that is the Proto-Elamite culture, and we'll look at some small-scale rural settlements in the north. Then episode 30 is an interview episode about ancient waterways. And then season 3, starting in episode 31, covers early dynastic Sumer between about 2900 and 2300 BCE. At time of recording, I only have three episodes up, but I have another 17 episodes written. Episode 1 is an intro to the early dynastic period. It's a good place to start if you're not into prehistory. From that point on, we actually have historical text to rely on. And I'm currently researching the Old Akkadian, or the Sargonic period. There's lots of cool stuff there, too, and I'll have more to report on that later. But for now, we're going to return to the Atrahasis. When the gods, instead of men, did the work, bore the loads. The gods' load was too great, the work too hard, the trouble too much. The great Anunnaki made the Igigi carry the workload sevenfold. So we see a kind of class system among the gods. The Igigi, or the lesser gods, and the Anunnaki, or the more famous greater gods, like Enlil, Enki, Inanna, and so on. 
So the work that these igigi have to do is to dig ditches for irrigation. The gods had to dig out canals, had to clear channels, the lifelines of the land. The gods dug out the Tigris River and then dug out the Euphrates. So one of the igigi suggests they go on strike. It's worth noting that this text predates the first historical evidence of a labor strike by 400 years. So the first strike that we know of in history happened around 1200 BC in Egypt. And I felt like I was kind of like looking too far to the past when I like Eugene V. Debs. Yeah, exactly. I thought I was looking too far to the past. <laughs> I thought a hundred years was too long. No, it's like that, uh, you know, the famous quote, where there was a class of peasants providing corvée labor to build tombs for the kings, there I am. <laughs> 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 but clearly the idea of a strike had been around for longer because it shows up in full form in this story. And it's likely that organized workers' resistance is as old as the working class. So at least as old as the mid 3000s BCE, which we're going to talk more about in the Uruk period in season two. So they burned their shovels and prepared to storm their boss's house. Come, let us carry in Leo, the counselor of the gods, the warrior from his dwelling. Now cry battle. The gods listened to his speech, set fire to their tools, put aside their spades for fire, their loads for the fire god. They flared up. So the Sumerian god Enlil is king of the gods and god of kingship. This translation calls him Elil. So his gate is locked, but Enlil's servants hear the workers and wake him up. So when he hears what's going on, Enlil sends his servant to ask the workers why they're there, and they reply, Every single one of us has uh, declared war. Uh, we have put a stop to the digging. Uh, the load is excessive. It's uh, killing us. Our work is too hard. Uh, the trouble too much. So every single one of us gods uh, has agreed to complain to Enlil. So Enlil starts crying. He agrees with the workers that they had been forced to do too much work. So he calls a council of all the gods, and the Sumerian water god, Enki, talks first. Enki made his voice heard and spoke to the gods, his brothers. Why are we blaming them? Their work was too hard. Their trouble was too much. Every day the earth resounded. The warning signal was loud enough. We kept hearing the noise. Belet-ili, the womb goddess, is present. Let her create primeval man so that he may bear the yoke. Let man bear the load of the gods. They summon the mother goddess Nintu to create humans out of clay. Nintu made her voice heard and spoke to the great gods. It is not proper for me to make him. The work is Anki's. He makes everything pure. If he gives me clay, then I will do it. Essentially, they need to mix clay with the blood of a slaughtered god in order to create intelligent beings. That's a really interesting concept. It's kind of a like law of equivalent exchange kind of thing. Uh -huh. You know, in, if the gods want to create something that doesn't exist, they have to give up something. Yeah. Like, I give up you. Hey, guess two A. Come here. What for? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, you have to destroy the intelligence of this god in order to create a species of intelligent beings yeah. that can do manual labor, A, and B, you know, worship the gods and make sacrifices and so on. Yeah. And also the, the fact that they're mixed with clay. So they're mixed with something material from the world. And given the immaterial from the god, like Ooh, the soul and nice. intelligence yeah. and all that. And those two components are what makes us us. Also, having us be made from the blood of the gods makes mm. human sacrifices probably even more potent or even more, like I guess, important. No, that's true. And yeah. we don't have a whole lot of human sacrifices from Mesopotamia. Okay. But the ones that we do have are very notable. Yeah. Guess to A, a god who had intelligence. They slaughtered in their assembly. Nintu mixed clay with his flesh and blood. They heard the drumbeat forever after. A ghost came into existence from the god's flesh, and she proclaimed it as his living sign. The ghost existed so as not to forget the slain god. So Nintu says, I have carried out perfectly the work that you ordered of me. You have slaughtered a god together with his intelligence. I have relieved you of your hard work. I have imposed your load on man. You have bestowed noise on mankind. I have undone the fetter and granted freedom. So Nintu creates seven men and seven women out of clay and pairs them off two by two. 
These recall the two versions of the Noah's Ark story in Genesis. So there's one version we have two of every animal. Mm -hmm. So that's the quote-unquote priestly version. Mm -hmm. So the version that reflects the interest of the priests at Jerusalem mm -hmm. when it was written. So to them, the only proper place to do animal sacrifice is at the Temple of Solomon in Jerusalem. So the idea that Noah would be sacrificing animals on his own would be anathema. Like, well, he, he can't do that. He's not at Jerusalem. So in that story, there's only two of every animal so they can reproduce. But in the earlier version of the story, it's two of every wild animal and seven of all the animals that are able to be sacrificed. Oh. So that when the ark returns to land, he can sacrifice some of the animals and not run out of goats forever. That'll be relevant later on in this episode. But first, so like I said, this episode is going to deal with the period of time leading up to the beginning of the Neolithic. So to start with a quick timeline of modern humans, around 300,000 years ago, we have the oldest known physically modern humans found at Jebel Irhud in northwestern Africa. By about 100,000 years ago, the large migrations out of Africa, which would populate the rest of Eurasia and eventually the Americas and Australia, had begun, although intermigrations between Eurasia and Africa would continue throughout human history. Around 44,000 years ago, we see the oldest representational art, that is the oldest art representing real things instead of just geometric patterns, and we see that on the island of Sulawesi in Indonesia. Around 40,000 years ago, Neanderthals went extinct. Both Neanderthals and Denisovans would contribute to human genomes, including in Africa, because of these cross-migrations. So during the 30,000s BCE, we see the oldest known statues of humans, along with famous cave art in France, and new types of tools suggest advancements in social organization. So the last glacial maximum was the most recent peak of the Ice Age. It lasted between about 25,000 and 18,000 BCE. So from 18,000 BCE until the Younger Dryas, which we'll talk about, the climate was gradually getting warmer and generally moving from Ice Age conditions to more modern conditions. Speaking of caves, although we'll be spending time in a cave today, the majority of prehistoric peoples built their own homes. That is, even when they lived in caves seasonally or used caves for certain ritual purposes or art, they didn't necessarily live in caves the majority of the time, so it's kind of unfair to call them cavemen. In fact, often prehistoric peoples chose the most remote and inaccessible parts of the cave for ritual activity, like cave art and burials, like we'll talk about today. These are spaces separated from the outside world in just about every way. You know, dark secluded, not a lot of airflow, not a lot of animals wandering in and out. Whereas, obviously, people would need daily access to the outside world in order to live, you know, hunting, gathering, gathering supplies to make houses and tools and clothes and so on. Caves just happen to be more likely to preserve organic material, again, because they're not as exposed to the elements. Caves are often less likely to be disturbed by later agriculture or construction projects, which is why we're more likely to find traces of prehistoric life in caves than we are out in the open. Before the development of agriculture, ways of life varied widely between different peoples, and it would be impossible to tell an exact history of all these people, given how little we can reconstruct about their lives. In the region of the Near East that we'll be looking at, there were thousands and thousands of different communities, each with their own cultures, language, and traditions. They lived by means of foraging, also called hunting and gathering, so they would have spent their days gathering wild plants and hunting and fishing for wild animals. Obviously, they weren't farming as we would recognize it, although they did have several means of propagating the wild species that they gathered. We'll talk about that. And of course, they had no domestic herds of sheep or cattle or any other livestock. The only animal that they had domesticated by this point was the dog. We'll talk about that today, too. So for episode one, we will be focusing on Syro-Palestine, otherwise called the Levant. It's the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, including Palestine, Lebanon, and the western parts of Jordan and Syria. Geographically, we're looking at a region stretching from the Euphrates and the Taurus Mountains in the north to the Negev Desert and the Sinai Peninsula in the south. And the archaeological culture that we'll be looking at today is the Natufian culture. So we're going to start with the early Natufian, which was an archaeological culture in Syro-Palestine, lasting between about 13,000 and 11,000 BCE. So we see two important innovations during this early Natufian period that are going to have major implications for later periods of history. 
One is that they were uniquely reliant on harvested wild grains, that is, large seeded grasses that are the wild ancestors of modern wheat and barley. Obviously, we'll talk about that. The other major important innovation of this period was sedentism, or living in the same place year-round. This was also an important step in the domestication process. So before widespread sedentism, almost everyone relied on foraging and almost everyone was nomadic. They would move their settlements regularly so as not to overharvest any particular area. No, you don't want to deplete the region where you live of the plants that you gather and the animals that you hunt in order to live. So after you've spent a while living and foraging in one place, you want to give those populations time to recover. It's a good idea to take all your stuff and set up camp somewhere else again, to give that environment time to recover. Because of this, we don't see much evidence of dwellings from these periods, because these houses were mostly temporary and built of organic materials that could be easily harvested and easily built and easily abandoned. So let's look at the environment that these early Natufian people would have been living in. And the last glacial maximum ends around 18,000 BCE. So from that point onwards, the Ice Age is in the process of ending. This process happens in fits and starts and sometimes goes backwards, as we'll see. So starting between about 15,000 and 13,000 BCE, Temperatures start to rise. The Antarctic ice shelf melts, leading to sea level rise. This allows humans to push into new habitats, including in the Near East. Around the same time, megafauna go extinct. All those really big prehistoric animals, mammoths, woolly sloths, cave lions, and so on. These extinctions may have been helped along by humans, although they also had something to do with climate change. Around the same time, the climate got wetter, starting around 15,000 BCE and peaking in the 11,000s BCE. So during the early Natufian period, again, between about 13,000 and 11,000 BCE, the climate is getting wetter and wetter over time. So generally, the climate here had a fair amount of seasonal variation with cold, rainy winters and hot, dry summers. Speaking of rain, the amount of precipitation tends to determine certain features of each individual ecosystem. Most rain in this area fell closer to the Mediterranean Sea. So most vegetation grew within 65 kilometers of the coast, around 50 miles. So, where annual precipitation is over 800 millimeters, we tend to see dense oak forests. In places where it rains between 400 and 800 millimeters per year, we tend to see grassy meadows. And under 400 millimeters per year, we tend to see shrubland, steppes, and deserts. So this particular area of Syro-Palestine that we'll be looking at is home to a varied landscape. Mountain ranges near the coast run north to south. So foragers traveling east to west don't have to move as far in order to exploit different ecosystems. So this allows mobile foragers to live in a home range between about 300 and 500 square kilometers. Whereas if they lived in a steppe or desert environment, they would have to range over a much larger area to collect the same amount of food between 500 and 2000 square kilometers. In other words, more resources concentrated in a smaller area means that people don't have to travel as far in order to meet their basic needs. This will be important as we look at sedentism. Also, climate shifts affect dry areas more. For example, if a dry steppe gets a little bit drier and turns into a desert, People living on the fringe of that steppe and forests can still continue to exploit the forest even as the steppe turns into a desert. And remembering that forests get the most rain. If that forest gets drier, then different trees will start to grow in that forest. For example, juniper and pistachio require less water than oak trees do, but there would still be a forest environment for humans to hunt and gather in. In other words, access to resources in areas where it rains more is less vulnerable to climate change. So let's take a closer look at foraging in Natufian-era Syro-Palestine. So as I mentioned, foraging entails hunting, gathering, and fishing. The fact that people rely on different food sources, often from different ecosystems, makes this lifestyle adaptable to different conditions. For example, a problem affecting an individual species of plant or animal won't necessarily tank their entire way of life because they can just shift their focus to a similar species of plant or animal. But when you have changes affecting the entire environment, foragers are of course vulnerable to changes like that. 
So in a foraging society, food production is a social activity in both senses of the word social. So when you and your village are hunting, gathering, and fishing, you could take breaks, hang out, shoot the breeze, working, and so on. Of course, you don't have any bosses, per se. You generally don't have to spend that many hours of hard work every day to secure enough food for the entire community. And given the popularity of modern hobbies like apple picking and hunting and so on and fishing, the activities involved in procuring food were not that physically strenuous and they wouldn't require you to work from sunrise to sunset. So the plants that will be most relevant to our narrative are large seeded grasses. In other words, the wild ancestors of wheat, barley, and rye. They also relied on seeds like acorns and the seeds of white flowered asphodels, as well as nuts like pistachios and almonds and fruit like plum, pear, and hackberry. So, of course, when your diet includes lots of fruits and nuts, you tend to get a lot of protein and calories along with other nutrients. These are often easy to pick and eat, and they don't need to be processed intensively. So at this point, people could feed their entire community by working less than 20 hours a week, or around the same amount as a modern part-time job. This would be enough to feed your entire community, including children, old people, disabled people, pregnant people, and so on. This figure doesn't include other crafts, but you can do a lot of those sitting down at home or near home. In other words, not being away from your children or other members of your family. Of course, we'll be talking a lot about cereals. So people during the Natufian period would have harvested grasses like wild wheat and barley with flint sickles. We know they used these to harvest grass because these blades have a sickle sheen on them. This is a shiny layer of silica that develops when you cut through the silica-rich stems of plants like grasses. Sometimes these sickles or knives would have animal heads carved on their handles, which may speak to some kind of ritual importance to the act of gathering grass. As I mentioned, this grass was not domesticated yet. We don't see any discernible change in the size or amount of seeds, but people probably played some role in propagating them, whether that includes seasonal burning or removing other plants, in other words, weeding, and maybe deliberately planting seeds. You know, they may have been disturbing the soil in order to create more beneficial environments for particular types of plants, but we don't see any evidence of artificial selection for particular traits yet. So grinding stones become more common over time. This trend will continue into the Neolithic probably because cereals are becoming more important over time. So some advantages of grinding grain, you create more surface area, which means that it takes less time to cook. And it also allows you to absorb more calories from the same amount of food, which leads to more dietary energy and less energy wasted. At Rockefet Cave in Palestine, which appears to be a Natufian burial site occupied around 11,000 BCE, we see evidence of brewing beer, possibly for funeral celebrations. This is the oldest known cereal-based beer in the world. And of course, in addition to gathering plants, people would have relied on hunting to secure food. So they could hunt with spears, slings, bows, and arrows. In addition to meat, of course, hunting provided skins for clothes and blankets, sinews for thread, and bones for carving and making tools. So large game would have been important to them, but it wouldn't have been the staple of their diet. So their main game animal would have been the mountain gazelle. The species does not tend to migrate much. So one herd of mountain gazelle tends to have a home range under 25 square kilometers or 10 square miles. The goitered gazelle migrates farther and is more common in the desert. In parkland environments, they would have hunted wild goats. In rocky dry landscapes, they would have hunted the ibex. And other big game animals would have included wild cattle, fallow deer, roe deer, and wild boar, as well as wild ass. They also would have relied on small game, including tortoises, hares, and partridges, as well as ducks, turtles, and fish. We know they use bone fish hooks, and whatever other kinds of traps they would have made are now lost. So most Natufian sites are near water, so obviously every site has to be near fresh water for people to live, but also the Mediterranean Sea would have been a massive source of both food and supplies. Unlike on land, aquatic resources are often available year-round, which makes them a more reliable source of protein than migrating herds. Obviously they would have eaten fish and crustaceans, they could have hunted aquatic mammals like seals and dolphins, and gathered invertebrates like sea urchins. Most often they ate fish like tilapia and carp, but they also ate sharks, catfish, minnows, and sea breams. 
already mentioned they made fish hooks out of bone. They also made harpoons with barbed points and gorgets, which are two pointed lures, which you would attach to a rope and then pull back in order to hook a fish. Some notched stones may have been weights for fish nets. We can't be sure because the organic nets would have decayed. They probably would have been made of plant fibers like flax or maybe seaweed fibers. Speaking of shellfish, some sites have reduced hundreds of shells. So at the very least, we know they were using their shells. And of course, they might have also eaten the animals. We have both freshwater and saltwater shellfish, as well as land snails. And these shells get much more common throughout the Natufian. The most common type of shell is dentalium. This shell has a long cone. It looks like a fang, hence the name. These shells are bigger during the early Natufian period, and they're common to both domestic debris and burials. They get smaller over time and disappear from graves later in the Natufian period, which probably speaks to an issue with over-harvesting. Towards the end of the Natufian, they start working shells into beads, changing their natural shape and removing the surface, which makes it harder for modern archaeologists to tell which type of shell they're working with. For example, Mother of Pearl was worked into disc beads at the site of Ein Malaha, and we also see a shift towards treating shells as raw material to be worked into finished goods. So we can't know many details about Natufian society, so our best guess would have to be based on the modern anthropology of foraging societies. Most likely, each village was a kin group where people could enter by birth, marriage, or adoption. Essentially, each community would be a single family, all of whom would perceive themselves as sharing the same interests. Issues involving quote-unquote politics would often be resolved by consensus, and again, because everyone is considered part of the same family, there wouldn't be any political inequality as such between different families or groups. It was likely that these communities had a quote-unquote shaman or ritual leader. The word shaman has been distorted from its original meaning in the Tungus language from which it was taken, but generally it's common in small foraging societies for specific individuals to have a unique knowledge of rituals and religious knowledge, which gives them a unique connection with the supernatural. There is evidence of exogamic marriage. In other words, people probably married outside their village, which makes sense given that the village was likely their family. This would be a good way to build alliances with outside villages so that you could have allies in case of famine or warfare. This would also make society resilient against small shifts in climate or environment because you could always move closer to your friendly neighbors. These alliances were probably not formal or institutional or even permanent per se, just based on relationships between individuals. In other words, you were less likely to burn down your in-laws village. In foraging societies, couples tend to spend more time together than most modern couples in agricultural or industrial societies do. They spend more time working, sleeping, and raising children together. It helps that elders and other parents can also help raise your kids, because children are probably raised communally instead of by each individual nuclear family. Parents in modern foraging societies tend to be warmer and more affectionate than modern parents in the West. They tend to reward independence and risk-taking, along with personal achievement, more than obedience. So there's a common misconception that when we say the life expectancy of a prehistoric society was around 30 years old, that most people would have died at age 30. These statistics are often skewed by infant and maternal mortality. So in other words, if you survive to about age 8, you're likely to survive to childbearing age. And if you don't die in childbirth, you're likely to live into your 50s or 60s. So it's not that the average person dies at age 30, it's just that lots of people die as a baby or in the process of childbirth. Respect for elders would have been a fundamental social value. Almost every adult would have been raised by the other adults in the village. So in other words, it's not just respect for elders in an abstract social sense, but literally respect for the people who helped raise you. There are many types of foraging that aren't especially hard on the body that even older members of the community could help with. But even when someone is too old to hunt or gather in any way, they could still be old enough to remember and pass on several extra decades of data points about weather patterns, migration patterns, recipes for medical treatments, and so on, so that even when they're not directly involved in productive activity, they can still help guide that productive activity. So I mentioned sedentism earlier. Archaeologist Ofer Bar-Yosef calls Natufian settlements base camps. 
So in other words, even if people have a permanent home, they still travel a fair amount, often in summertime. So we don't see an immediate seamless transition from nomadism to sedentism. Instead, it's a general process of staying in one place for a longer part of the year until you invest enough time in it that it makes sense to build up more permanent settlements. So Natufian villages tend to be extremely small. Most are under 1,000 square meters. By contrast, most sites that we'll look at over the course of this podcast are measured in hectares. So one hectare is equal to 10,000 square meters, or about two American football fields. Any given Natufian village would fit between the 50-yard line and the end zone of a single football field, probably home to a couple dozen people at the most, not hundreds or thousands as we'll see in later periods. Most of these settlements would be on the edges of oak and pistachio forests, giving people access to a rich and diverse ecosystem, animals to hunt, both in the forest and in the grasslands, as well as wood for timber and firewood. Most importantly, these areas on the borders between forests and grassland will provide the right combination of moisture and sunlight for large-seeded grasses, which both now and later will provide a dense amount of nutrition. So earlier I mentioned sedentism, or living in the same place permanently, instead of migrating regularly or seasonally like most other foraging groups do. This new living situation is made possible by a dense concentration of food. As I mentioned, they live within easy reach of several different ecosystems, which gives them access to a large and diverse array of different types of food together. So now that people live in the same place year-round, they have an incentive to put in extra effort to make it nice. So, whereas previously you would build temporary houses out of only organic materials, now people are beginning to level hillsides and make bigger houses with more plaster and haul big stones around, both for foundations and for various types of monuments. This also sets them apart from other foraging groups in other areas. So, I mentioned that large grinding stones become more common during the Natufian period. A quern is a large stone used for pounding and grinding grain. These can weigh up to 150 kilograms, or 330 pounds. They are, to put it lightly, a real pain to move to a settlement, and they'd be prohibitively difficult to move long distances. So the fact that they become more common means that people are investing more and more effort hauling giant stones to a particular location because they intend to stay there for a long period of time. We also see more skeletons of pests near these sedentary sites, so mice, rats, and sparrows. So, in other words, because people are storing more food in a single place, it's likely that more animals are going to come and try to eat it. Over time, these pests will become a permanent feature of sedentary and later agricultural communities. So people generally lived in pit houses between three and six meters across, or 10 to 20 feet. These were partially dug into the ground. Their walls have foundations of undressed stone. Again, a feature of more labor investment in a more permanent site. The walls and roof were still built of wood and brush. We have no evidence of mud bricks yet. Inside these houses, we see fireplaces or hearths. These houses were periodically rebuilt. This might be evidence of temporary abandonment. In other words, people might leave the village, come back later, either later in the year or after a couple years, and then rebuild the same house on the same foundation. We also see what might be the first public buildings, a concept that will be extremely important to later episodes of the podcast. So at the site of Ein Malaha, we see a specific building with a bench covered in lime plaster. At the same site, we see a large building with a diameter of 15 meters or 50 feet. At the site of Rochezine, we see a limestone monolith, one meter tall, surrounded by slab pavement, all of which might be evidence of special buildings used for ritual purposes. In other words, not houses for domestic use, but a house serving the public for a kind of ceremonial use. Keep that in mind during later episodes. Interestingly, during the Natufian period, we don't see that much evidence of storage. This is notable because sedentism is often associated with long-term storage, as are commensal pests like mice and rats. So in other words, generally, if you're not traveling to different ecosystems with the seasons, you're going to need to store enough food to get you through less abundant seasons. We do see some plaster pits at Ein Malaha, which might be for storage. And they might have also used baskets above ground, which we wouldn't have evidence of. But, of course, long-term storage of dry goods, especially grain, will be extremely important later on. 
So all Natufian villages had associated burials. People tended to be buried in pits, either outside the village or in abandoned houses. Unlike during the Neolithic and later periods, we don't see any burials under houses where people were currently living. So you could be buried in a house that people had abandoned, but not under the floor of a house in current use. Burial practices varied. Sometimes a grave would hold a single person, sometimes several people. Over time, single burials become more common. And we also see over time more secondary burials, which is when after someone is buried, you dig up some of the bones, use them for some kind of ritual ceremonial purpose, and then rebury them elsewhere later on. Notably, during this period, we see head removals. In other words, taking the skull from a buried body, presumably using it in some kind of ancestor ritual. Stay tuned, because this will be common throughout the entire Neolithic. Children make up one-third of burials, which is to say that lots of kids died, especially between ages 5 and 7, which is evidence of population stress during the transition to sedentism. So as they're making this shift from nomadic foraging to living in one place and depending intensively on certain types of grasses, this isn't a foolproof system, and especially kids who need a lot of nutrition as they're growing up may have been at special risk of starving during this period. In terms of grave goods, we see head decorations, necklaces, bracelets, belts, earrings, and pendants, many of which are made of marine shells, bones, and teeth. We also see a bone dagger and a bone figurine of a young gazelle, and a small human head made of limestone, which points forward in time towards what we'll call the skull cult or head cult, tied with the removal of ancestors' heads for use in rituals. Again, more on that later. But in general, during the Natufian period, grave goods become less common over time. Most importantly, we see no evidence of social hierarchy and burials during the early Natufian period. In other words, whatever distinctions there were in everyday social life do not appear to be reflected in burials. So everyone is buried with similar amounts of stuff and similar types of stuff. In most cases, there are no obvious markers above ground for these burials. Graves are sometimes paved with limestone or plaster, but more often they're just filled in with dirt from the village. And sometimes this dirt includes debris and animal bones and so on. At the site of Nahal Oren, we see a large fireplace, 1.2 meters in diameter, or about four feet, and it's surrounded by limestone slabs. And notably, it's placed in the center of a cluster of burials. So it may have some kind of ceremonial association with these burials. So to look at art, we see lots of figurines made of bone and limestone. Figurines of humans are rare. We have only a couple, and they tend to be made of limestone. At the site of Ein Sahri, we see a figurine of a human couple having sex. We have more animal figurines depicting tortoises, dealing gazelles, and what may be a baboon. These are sometimes carved into the handles of sickles, as I said. Often these sickles depict young gazelles. This may have some kind of totemic symbolic importance or some other kind of ritual significance. We also see some hybrid figurines, in other words, figures with heads on each end. So one figure has an owl head on one side and a dog head on the other, or a human on one side and a wild cow on the other. This presages a long history of hybrid animals being important in Near Eastern mythology, and they may be related to burials of humans with dogs, a symbolic mixing of human and canine identity, if you will. In terms of rock art, several limestone slabs are incised with various designs. On rounded structures at Hyonim Cave, we see a ladder pattern motif. Ofer Bar Yosef says this is often, quote, interpreted as the accumulated effects of notational marks, end quote. On another limestone slab, we see a drawing of a fish. Other designs include zigzags, meanders, and nets, mostly on stone bones and tools. We also see these designs on containers made from ostrich eggs. In terms of jewelry, like I said, they made headgear, necklaces, belts, bracelets, and earrings. These are often made of seashells, bone, limestone, or greenstone, as well as malachite, which is a copper ore, which will be important later. Stay tuned for episode 21 on metallurgy during the 3000s BCE. At Ein Malaha, we see a tusk shell from the Atlantic and a freshwater clam from the Nile River, as well as obsidian from eastern Anatolia, or modern Turkey, 
So like I said, at this point, Natufian culture had no livestock or herds of domestic animals, and they had no access to meat without hunting or fishing. Like I said, their only domestic animals would have been dogs, these dogs being descendants of wild wolves from the Near East. So wild wolves hunt a lot of the same prey as people, and wolves would have noticed that human hunters consistently leave meat out for the taking. First in their hunting grounds, where humans will butcher their freshly killed game, sometimes to take the meatiest joints back to the village and leave the rest so that you don't have to drag the entire dead cow back to your village. You know, so this would give the wolves a large animal that they didn't have to put in the work to kill, and that they would be able to monopolize the remains of, being one of the strongest scavenging animals in the region. But also, humans would leave out scraps of meat near their village. You know, after cooking, they would throw away the bones and bits of the animal they didn't use in cooking. So it's likely that wolves would have followed humans from their hunting grounds back to their settlements, and started to scavenge in their garbage for this, you know, still edible, you know, meat that humans had thrown out. So wolves might have played a similar role to raccoons in modern suburbs, where it's easier to tolerate them than to try to drive them out. So studies of scavenging wolves have shown that they behave differently from wild wolves in a wild context. They're less afraid of people, they behave less aggressively in general, and they fight each other less. You know, this change in behavior may have given them more access to the village. Again, humans are more likely to put up with wolves that are less dangerous and less likely to fight. And of course, this would have given those more docile wolves more access to food from these human settlements. Over time, these wolves' reliance on human activity, combined with their decreasing reliance on wild competition, would have put them at a disadvantage against wild wolves, and given them no choice but to rely more on humans. So dogs would have started helping people hunt, as well as protecting their territory from interlopers. So for modern ethnography, studying modern foraging peoples, dawn raids are a common mode of forager warfare. That is, your enemy is most likely to attack your village at dawn, sneaking up on you in cover of darkness and attacking right as the sun rises. So wolves don't bark, but of course domestic dogs do, so barking may have been an adaptation to life among humans, wolves providing a benefit to humans by alerting them when human enemies are about to attack, and therefore getting to reap the benefits of living in a human settlement. So because of this, people might have started treating the dogs as members of the community, keeping them inside the village and feeding them, and helping to raise their puppies. You know, and as soon as humans are playing this integral role in the reproduction of the species, you know, wolves have approached the cusp of domestication. This process was probably complete by around 12,000 BCE, and possibly much, much earlier. At the Natufian site of Ain Malaha in northern Palestine, around 12,000 BCE, we see dogs buried alongside humans. We see an elderly woman buried, lying on her right side, and her left wrist is resting on a four- to five-month-old puppy. It's not clear if this is a dog pup or a wolf pup. This is the first known burial of its kind. And of course, it speaks to the possibility that dogs were considered part of the human community and given access to burial rites that wild animals would not have access to. In the same house, we see an adult dog mandible and a dog tooth at the nearby site of Hayonim from the same time period. Like I said, it's not clear whether these dogs were fully domesticated, but the fact that puppies were buried alongside people indicates that people were involved with the breeding process, giving people the ability to socialize dogs from birth in human settings, and to artificially select for genes to make the dogs more docile, submissive, and agreeable. So there is a gene called the small dog haplotype, and all modern dog breeds under 9 kilograms, or about 20 pounds, share a single haplotype, from schnauzers to chihuahuas. So this gene would have arisen soon after the domestication of dogs. It's absent from all wild canids and most large dog breeds. So among wild canids, dogs in this small dog haplogroup are the most similar to wild wolves from the Near East, which is a good indication that the ancestors of modern domestic dogs were first domesticated in the Near East. So of course there are some physical consequences to this domestication. Dogs lack traits, which wild wolves use for social signaling. So certain dogs have lost access to the ability to manipulate their muzzle, eyes, ears, coat, and tail to signal aggression. 
So for example, wolves prick up their ears and bristle their fur to signal aggression in the wild, but basset hounds can't move their ears and poodles can't move their fur, so they can't signal aggression in the same physiological ways that wild wolves do. But we see much more drastic consequences in dogs' behavior. Dogs mature much more slowly than wolves do, and even as adults, their behavior is much more similar to that of wolf pups than that of adult wolves, and their brains are proportionally smaller than those of wolves. So dogs' brains develop more slowly and less completely. They retain juvenile traits into adulthood, which is a common feature of domestic species called neoteny, where adult members of the species don't mature as fully as their wild counterparts do. So wolves are a social species, and their behavior can be shaped by their upbringing. So in studies comparing wolves raised by humans to domestic dogs, pet dogs outperform dogs from an animal shelter, which indicates that socialization and environment affect intelligence. So there is a three-week window to socialize wolf pups, and humans have best results socializing them, taking them from their mother before two weeks of age. On the other hand, dogs don't even begin socialization until they're three weeks old. And during the first three to four months, they keep forming primary relationships with other humans or animals, you know, whoever's raising them. This depends on breed. But wolves mature faster at every stage of development. They compete better, they learn better, they respond more quickly to their environment, and they take social cues better than dogs of the same age from both humans and other wolves. All of this goes to show that adult dogs are less intelligent and act less mature than wolves. You know, and all of this was intentionally bred into dogs by humans. You know, wolf pups are reliant on their mothers for food and protection, as well as emotional support and social guidance. It was advantageous for humans to have dogs that look to them for guidance throughout their entire adult lives. And because domestic dogs are raised by humans, they came to resemble not only immature wolves, but also baby humans. So domestic dogs evolved eye muscles that mimic the expressions that people make when they're distressed. You know, the eyebrows move upward and inward, causing their eyes to appear larger, like baby's eyes. And dogs use this to express distress, and this face makes them more sympathetic to people, and they're more likely to make this face when they know a human is looking at them. So when people talk about other people making puppy dog eyes, really they're referring to a person imitating a dog imitating a human baby. So I also mentioned foxes which are common across Eurasia. They have never been fully domesticated, but modern experiments in Russia have shown that they're easy to tame and that domestication is theoretically possible. Specifically, foxes have been found across Natufian Palestine, including at Jericho, which we'll look at in episode four. They're often found in similar contexts to the skeletons of martens and wild cats, so they might have been hunted for meat. They also might have been a commensal pest. So like raccoons, they might have adapted to living in or near human settlements, maybe eating rats and mice that eat humans' grain, so they might have had a similar role to cats in agricultural societies. Either way, fox bones are common at Natufian sites. Most commonly, we see their skulls, foot bones, and tail vertebrae. When people are using foxes for their pelts, these are the bones that are most likely to stay inside the pelt. Again, you're going to take out the ribs, but you might not think to take out all of the toe bones if you're using it for a blanket or a ceremonial garb or whatever. So in episode two, we will visit Gerbekli Tepe, where foxes appear on pillars, including one depiction of a guy wearing a loincloth made from a fox pelt. Foxes were also common in Natufian burials. So at the site of Uyun al-Hammam in Jordan, which is occupied between about 15,000 and 12,000 BCE, we see evidence of humans buried alongside foxes. Underneath one person's ribs were an adult fox's skull and a right humerus, as well as some tortoise shells. This is a different grave from the woman we'll mention later in this episode, who is buried with many more tortoise shells. Both human and fox skeletons are often found covered in red ochre, which is commonly used across Western Eurasia to color art objects like shell and flint, as well as human and animal bones in burials. Around 50 centimeters away from this woman with the fox skull and right humerus, we see the remains of at least two different people who were moved relatively early in the decomposition process. So in this grave, we see a bone spoon, a deer antler, flint blades and flakes, and an adult fox skeleton, complete except for a skull and a humerus, as well as chunks of red ochre. 
So the two fox arm bones from the two different graves are the same size, which probably indicates that this is one animal buried in two different places. This speaks to a system of deliberate disinterment and reburial, or secondary burial. So in other words, the fact that not long after burial, they would have dug up part of the fox skeleton and reinterred it in a different grave with a different person's remains. This might point to a specific relationship between the human and the fox. Remembered well after both of them were dead, the human may have been some kind of shaman with a special relationship to certain animals, or the fox may have been kind of a pet or a tame animal. So to look at labor and gender, uniquely during this period, men's dominant arms, usually the right arm, are much stronger than their other arm. This is skeletal evidence that they used their throwing muscles more in their dominant arms. This is probably because they were throwing so many spears for hunting. This isn't the case for all foraging societies, but it is notably true here, and only for the Natufian period, not during the later Neolithic. Conversely, women seem to have used their arms and hands more for fine motor activities, like basketry, spinning, and weaving, and especially their arms show evidence of processing grain by pounding instead of grinding. In general, jobs performed by women in these kinds of societies tend to be performed close to home, they tend to be repetitive and don't require concentration, and they're often able to be interrupted and resumed without too much trouble. The assumption generally being that women's tasks need to be compatible with the requirements of childcare. So in general, men strongly favor their dominant arm and use their biceps and triceps more, whereas women use both arms equally and use their latissimus dorsi more. Both sexes use their pectoral, brachialis, and deltoid muscles a lot. And this sexual division of labor, in other words, these different loading patterns on men and women, would disappear during the Neolithic, as both of them begin to be involved in more strenuous tasks. Other activities that we can discern from the skeletons involve small-scale infrastructure, like leveling, terracing, and digging, making rounded, low-walled stone structures and tombs, and making stone tools and jewelry. So, to summarize the early Natufian period, we don't see much inheritable wealth. Food, being perishable, appears to have been shared equally. They, of course, have no livestock or land ownership. Their tools don't last forever, but they also don't take long to make. So because they have no inherited wealth, they don't have any wealth inequality, which again, in a society where everyone is in the same family, wouldn't make much sense. So in short, they had no government, they had no kings or aristocratic families, they had no law code, police force, or standing army, and no institutional wealth or status hierarchy. Almost all of that will continue to be the case during the late Natufian, but we'll look at one very interesting exception. So the late Natufian lasts between about 10,800 and 9,600 BCE. The same cultural traditions continue, as far as we can tell, these are the same people living in the same place. They probably continue to intermigrate and intermarry with their neighbors. But during this period, they have to adapt to changing conditions, most importantly, a radically different climate. So the Younger Dryas is a global climate event that represents a short-term return to glacial conditions, in general making the climate much colder and drier. The ice sheets returned in northern Europe, and weather patterns changed across the world. This event began fairly suddenly. The transition into the Younger Dry seems to have lasted only about 50 years. In other words, a single human could perceive the change within their lifetime. And this event would last over a thousand years, so most of the 11th and into the 10th millennium BCE, again between about 10,800 and 9,600 BCE. Its length and effects varied by region. It was more severe in the mountains and less so near the coast. In the Fertile Crescent, an area which we'll talk more about next time, the forests retreated. Initially, this disappearance of trees was great for nearby plants as smaller plants that required less nutrients and less water were able to take over the ecosystem, but over time, forests turned to grasslands. And remember how I said that these kinds of large-seeded grasses that provided the most dense nutrition thrived on the edges of forests? Well, now there are no forests, it's all grassland. So people are forced to focus on smaller-seeded grasses. So essentially, we're talking more about weeds than the kinds of wild ancestors of wheat and barley that are more important to our story. They were also forced to focus on other monocotyledons, like sedges and tubers, in terms of hunting, tortoises become more common than hares and partridges, possibly because tortoise habitat expanded 
as grasslands turn to desert and forests turn to grassland. We also see a decline in sedentism. So because there's less resources available in the same area, people now have to wander across a larger area to maintain their standard of living. So as a result, people are spending less time in a single place and spending more time traveling and foraging across a larger region. So in general, people are doing more work for less nutrition and less food overall. So we're going to look at a particular site to see how these climate changes affected people's daily life. And the site we're going to look at is Abu Huraira in north-central Syria on the middle Euphrates. This site is currently under Lake Assad, flooded by the Tabqa Dam. It was occupied on and off from the Natufian to the Neolithic period. So during the early Natufian period, the climate was much wetter than it is today. So today, the site is 120 kilometers away from the nearest oak forest, but during the Natufian, it would have been near the Euphrates floodplain, the grasslands, and the forest steppe ecotone. They would have had access to lots of different plants, including fruits like plum, pears, and hackberries. They also ate pistachios. We have remains of the nuts themselves, but no remains of the wood from pistachio trees, which probably indicates that they were close enough to forests to gather food, but not close enough to haul heavier firewood. As I mentioned, they also ate white-flowered asphodel, this is a plant that grows on the periphery of forests. It also grows in the Homeric underworld. So when Odysseus tells the ghost of Achilles that Achilles' son was a great warrior in the Trojan War, Achilles dances happily through fields of white-flowered asphodels. We also see remains of cereals like wild einkorn and two types of rye. These are also indicative of a wetter climate and they grow on the edges of a forest, but they don't survive well in an open grassland. So this rye is morphologically domestic, which means that its seeds are unusually large for wild grains. It's unlikely, but not impossible, that these kinds of uniquely large seeds would evolve by chance in the wild because of random genetic variation, but the chances that these random mutants would appear alongside human settlements is basically zero. So this may provide evidence that people were involved in domesticating rye, in other words, artificially selecting for larger seeds to increase the amount of nutrition they can derive from the same amount of labor before the Younger Dryas. Even if they did domesticate rye before the Younger Dryas, though, this didn't have much of an effect on the rest of history because this kind of cultivation slash possible domestication would have been much harder during the Younger Dryas, so it appears that they abandoned it and had to start over again afterwards. So moving to the late Natufian at Abu Huraira, in other words, during the Younger Dryas, during this colder and drier climate event, for a time, these peripheral plants start to increase because the Younger Dryas is killing trees, which allows more sunlight and more nutrients and water and so on for nearby plants. But over time, as I said, the forest environment dries out and turns into grassland. So people have much less access to these large seeded grasses and asphodel. So they're forced to rely on new foods like clovers, medics, and other small seeded legumes, many of which need to be detoxified. But these new plants can survive a drier environment. So people were probably forced to rely on these because better food was unavailable. As the younger dryas continues, they use less and less food from valley bottoms, which probably reflects less rain in the Fertile Crescent and the Anatolian Highlands and lower river floods along the Euphrates. So this lifestyle is not sustainable in this region, especially as all of the forest ecosystems that they had relied on are now gone. So they couldn't maintain their sedentary lifestyle as they had been. They either had to go be sedentary somewhere else or take up a more nomadic lifestyle. So the site of Abu Huraira is abandoned. It would be reoccupied millennia later, as we'll see later on, but its later occupants would already be farmers living a fully agricultural lifestyle. So let's finish up today with a look at a burial in Hilazon Taktit Cave. This is a cave in northern Palestine, 14 kilometers east of the Mediterranean coast. The time period we're looking at is around 10,000 BCE, so a little over halfway through the Younger Dryas. The burial we'll be looking at is of an old woman. She was disabled and of short stature. She may have been a quote-unquote shaman or ritual leader. She was buried, among other things, with lots and lots of tortoises. And a 2016 article by Lior Grossman and Natalie Monroe details how they dug her grave. So, step one is to draw a grave outline. 
This grave is an unusually symmetrical oval, as Grossman and Monroe point out. This may be evidence that they had geometrical knowledge of an ellipse, where the sum of the distance between the circumference and two different points, or foci, is constant. So maybe what they did is attach two stakes in the ground and wrap a loop of rope around both. So you would put your arm inside to make a triangle and pull outwards until the rope is taut. And then you could use this to trace a symmetrical oval on the ground. Step two is to break apart the bedrock of the cave. The easiest way to do this would be to drill in several places. This is probably the process they were already using to make stone bowls. Either way, they have lots of stone to break up because the floor of the cave is essentially made of stone. Step three is to cover the inside of the grave with mud plaster, a layer of mud, two to three centimeters thick, about one inch. This mud was gathered from nearby the cave. Step four is to pave it with limestone slabs. So we have small slabs in the walls of the grave and big slabs on the ground. To quote Grossman and Monroe, these stones, quote, give off a strong odor of hydrogen sulfide when broken, end quote. That chemical is what gives gasoline its rotten egg smell. They also laid five centimeters of sediment on the bottom. Step five is to put various objects into the grave. We have chunks of male gazelle horn, three complete saltwater clamshells, a broken basalt pallet, chunks of chalk and red ochre, red ochre being common in prehistoric burials, at least three complete tortoise carapaces, and more limestone blocks. Step six, before interring the body, you want to put in the forearm of a wild boar under where her right humerus will be, so a boar's arm under her arm, two complete tortoise carapaces under her head and her pelvis, and then lay her body on top of those. Step seven is to put in more assorted objects in and near this grave. So a basalt bowl fragment, polished by frequent use, two seashell pendants, a tail from an aurochs or wild bull, one and a half marten skulls, the wingtip of a golden eagle, a leopard pelvis, and various tools, and then more rocks. Step eight is to fill in the grave. We have lots of human garbage in the soil, and eight gazelles, including at least four babies. Given the reproductive patterns of gazelles, this burial probably took place sometime between April and June. Also, remains of fox, partridge, and hare, and 1,609 snake vertebrae. And then step nine is to erect a tombstone, a large triangular rock on top of the grave, weighing 75 kilograms or 165 pounds. So including both the grave and the fill, this grave had 6,376 tortoise bones from at least 86 individual tortoises, all buried at the same time. Some of them were cooked and some had their shells broken intentionally. Grossman and Monroe say, quote, because of their slow escape strategy and low metabolic requirements, tortoises can be confined for sustained periods with minimal investment, end quote. So they didn't all necessarily have to be gathered for this burial specifically. They could be essentially gathered from the wild and kept upside down so they couldn't escape for weeks or maybe months. This is one reason why Galapagos tortoises almost went extinct, because sailors could easily collect them from the Galapagos and store them upside down in the ship's hold for weeks or months until it was time to eat them. Anyway, all told, this grave held about 25 kilograms of meat, or about 55 pounds. This is almost certainly the result of a funeral feast, and it's likely that specific animals were eaten for their specific ritual importance. So we're probably looking at several stages of a complex public ritual performance. The cave is structured such that it's possible for many people to stand and look at the grave. 25 kilograms of meat can feed many people, not to mention other types of food that may not have been preserved as well. So this ritual was as much for the living members of the community as it would be for the dead individual. This burial has some things in common with other Natufian burials. For example, large stones placed on the body and slab-lined pits. It's notable that in modern Jewish culture, people still place stones on top of graves. We also see particular animal body parts, including horn cores, which were included in other Natufian burials. But this particular burial required much more effort than almost any other burial from the Natufian period. So this may be evidence of some kind of social hierarchy. 
In other words, it's reasonable to assume that this woman held some kind of unique authority during her life. It's often assumed that she played some kind of quote-unquote shamanic role. As I mentioned, the word shaman in English means something different from its actual Tungus origin, where it referred to a specific type of healer. So a more neutral phrase preferred by modern anthropologists is something like ritual expert. So to look at feasting, Eating with strangers is older than Homo sapiens. People like to eat together. Every social animal shares food inside its community in some way. And sharing food with outsiders, however outsider is defined, is the most basic form of altruism. It's what distinguishes humans from chimps, but not bonobos. Food, of course, would be extremely valuable to foragers. There is a more or less one-to-one correlation between the amount of labor you put in and the amount of food that you receive from that labor. And because every able person would participate in food production, Sharing that food that your entire community participated in procuring with strangers would be a real gamble and would be a sign of trust. Every language has some form of the phrase breaking bread to indicate sharing food in order to build trust. The words companion and company come from the Latin phrase meaning with bread. The English word mate is cognate with the word meat in the sense that sharing your meat with someone would make them your mate. And of course, we see this practice play out in every single human society. The history of feasting is central to understanding the prehistory of Mesopotamia. We'll be looking at lunches, dinners, and temple banquets, among others. And importantly, who's invited and what they have to do in return for the food. So put a pin in that for now. In any case, we have a few things coming together here that will be important later. We have a person with a religious authority and what seems to be unique social or political power. We have an elaborate labor-intensive burial for a particular person. And we have evidence of an elaborate feast involving lots of meat to mark a specific event. So I mentioned earlier that during the Natufian period, we see evidence of beer brewing at Rockefet Cave in Palestine. Beer, of course, will be a central element in Near Eastern feasts in the future. The ability to metabolize alcohol is probably older than Homo sapiens. It was originally caused by an amino acid change in a particular enzyme, making that enzyme 40 times more efficient at catalyzing ethanol. This trait appears in the common ancestor of humans, chimps, and gorillas. So likely, because these apes became adapted to walking on the ground, it became easier to eat fruit that had already fallen on the ground and begun to ferment than it would be to climb the tree and pick fresh fruit so it became evolutionarily advantageous to process fermented sugars. Intentional fermentation is older than the Neolithic. The earliest evidence for it that we have is from about 105,000 BCE in the modern country of Mozambique. So essentially the process of fermentation involves a fungus called yeast converting the sugars in whatever's being fermented into ethanol. Specifically with cereals, this process also breaks down gluten. So to the extent that people couldn't digest gluten, this would have made more nutrition available to them. We'll talk about beer again next episode, and then a lot more during the pottery Neolithic. So that was the Natufian period. We're going to take a very quick look at the Holocene, or the beginning of the Neolithic, which we'll cover in much more detail next episode. In the early 9000s BCE, the Pleistocene ends, and the early Holocene begins. So the Pleistocene and the Holocene are geological epochs, the Younger Dryas being an event at the end of the Pleistocene, and the Paleolithic, giving way to the Neolithic, are archaeological periods. But both the Holocene and the Neolithic begin around the same time, that is, around 9600 BCE, or the end of the Younger Dryas. This is when temperatures increased dramatically and suddenly. The average temperature rose 7 degrees Celsius, possibly in a single decade, that's 13 degrees Fahrenheit. So the early Holocene would be only slightly cooler than the modern climate. This created ideal conditions for grass, which spread across large areas before trees did. This was ideal grazing land for game, which of course made it easier to hunt these wild herds of grazing animals. Also, as the forests returned, this made the wild ancestors of wheat and barley more available to people living on the edges of these forests. We also see new reliance on wetland resources. So people are eating more fish, and they're using more reeds and rushes from the banks of rivers to make both baskets and houses. More relevantly, though, this new climate enables experimentation with sources of food. So that there's more ambient nutrition in the environment, you're no longer risking starvation when you try out new cultivation techniques. 
So this would probably allow people to tinker with the growing conditions of grasses. In other words, trying out the kinds of cultivation that we've seen them experiment with on and off. But after the Younger Dryas, again in the mid-9000s BCE, we see an increase of microcharcoal in pollen samples, which is evidence of increased burning. So now that they've transitioned to exploiting specific types of grass, they may be burning areas of forest in order to encourage new grassland. This would be great news for gazelles, of course, which have new grass to eat, and it would be terrible for tortoises, which unlike gazelles cannot outrun the fire. So one thing we'll talk about next episode is the switch from small-grained to large-grained grasses. So in other words, the switch from weeds to wild barley, emmer, and einkorn, because as I mentioned, large-grained grasses grow better in this new Holocene climate. So in future episodes, I say that episode one talks about Gerbeckli Tepe. That is no longer true. I've moved that section to episode two. So instead, I'm going to end by summarizing everything I've mentioned that will be important for later. So foraging, in other words, hunting and gathering, is not particularly strenuous on the body, and it doesn't take up that much time. Ideally, you should live in a varied landscape with access to multiple ecosystems. Most foraging societies have no signs of major social hierarchy or even gender hierarchy per se, although we do see a sexual division of labor, at least to some extent. One of the major innovations of Natufian society was sedentism. They appear to be the first society in the Near East to stay in one place permanently. This allows for more long-term storage and more investment in building up their long-term homes. So they're building larger and more permanent structures, including out of stone that they have to haul from elsewhere. Even before the Neolithic, we see the Near East connected by trade routes. So people are trading luxury goods like seashells and obsidian from the Red Sea, the Mediterranean Sea, and Eastern Anatolia, and even as far as the Atlantic Ocean. We looked at the elaborate burial of the woman at Hilazon Taktit. Obviously, a funeral is a ceremony to mark the end of a person's life. This particular funeral appears to have involved a massive feast with lots of meat to mark the specific event. Along with the feast, we see evidence of lots of manual labor to construct a specific monumental space, not least hauling huge blocks of stone around, as well as the deposition of grave goods like jewelry, tableware, and animals, all of which will be very, very relevant soon. And stay tuned for next episode when we talk about Gerbeckli Tepe, which is famous for its massive stone pillars, which were erected as part of huge work projects tied to a tradition of feasting, all of which ties into the story of the growth of complex society and political hierarchy in the Near East. So earlier we read part of Atrahasis, which is a Mesopotamian creation myth from around 1600 BCE, but we didn't actually meet the character Atrahasis or introduce the actual plot of the story. So previously, gods created humans to do manual labor for the gods. These new humans made new picks and spades, made big canals to feed people and sustain the gods. That is, they started farming. So the text is talking about irrigation farming specifically, which won't be invented for a few thousand years. Unfortunately, there is no surviving poetry about early Neolithic farming, for obvious reasons. Do they, like, backwards add their farming techniques to the story? Well, yeah, I mean, they don't, the Mesopotamians don't know what was going on 5,000 years earlier. Yeah, yeah, So yeah. they're, you know, they're projecting their own farming techniques onto the distant past. Makes sense, makes sense. 600 years, less than 600, passed, and the country became too wide, the people too numerous. The country was as noisy as a bellowing bull. The god grew restless at their racket. Enlil had to listen to their noise. He addressed the great gods. The noise of mankind has become too much. I am losing sleep over the racket. Give the order that Sharupu disease shall break out. So humans are making too much noise. So for Enlil, it's time to wipe them out with a plague. <laughs> but there's one virtuous human. Now there was one Atrahasis whose ear was open to his god, Enki. He would speak with his god and his god would speak with him. Atrahasis made his voice heard and spoke to his lord. How long will the gods make us suffer? Will they make us suffer illness forever? Enki made his voice heard and spoke to his servant, Atrahasis. Call the elders, the senior men. Start an uprising in your own house. Let heralds proclaim, let them make a loud noise in the land. Do not revere your gods, do not pray to your goddesses, but search out the door of Namtara. 
So Namtar is a lesser god disease associated with the underworld. His name is Sumerian for fate. But essentially, the idea is that if you worship the disease god, then you can alleviate the disease. Makes sense. But also, I want to point out that I love the line, do not revere your gods, do not pray to your goddesses. Mm -hmm. No gods, no masters, my man. No, All exactly. Right. Basically, Enki's telling the humans to go on strike. Like a worship strike. Like a worship strike, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. The service that they provide to the gods is... It's worship, yeah, yeah, yeah. worship and offerings and stuff like that. A, they're going on a worship strike. Yes. This is awesome. Right. This is so much cooler <laughs> than any other... Okay. Right. Yeah, yeah. It worked for the Igigi, so why not? Yeah. So Atrahasis follows his instructions. The humans stop praying to the other gods and build a temple to Namtara, and they do recover from the disease. So the same formula repeats from earlier. There are too many people making too much noise, and Enlil is losing sleep. But this time, instead of disease, he commands a famine. There's a gap in the text, but Atrahasis deals with it in a similar way. He builds a temple to Adad, the Mesopotamian storm god, also known as Hadad or Hada or Hadu. We will meet this guide when we get to Ebla at the end of season three. This formula repeats a couple more times. Every time, there's too many people making too much noise. Enlil can't sleep, so he punishes humanity with disease and or famine. Because this god who can create disease and famine can't, like, create earplugs. Yep, exactly. Yep. So one of the diseases, Asaku, was inflicted on the people. The womb was too tight to let a baby out. That's real fictional? Man. Well, so Asaku is the Akkadian name of the Sumerian Asag. We'll see Ninurta fight the Asag monster in the next episode. So in the Akkadian language, Asaku most often appears as a medical issue preventing childbirth. Mm. Basically, it's it's a, probably based on a real medical problem, except personified as a demon or a god. Okay, yeah. So there are some gaps in the text, but apparently Enki answered Atrahasis' prayers and made sure people could grow grain, even when Enlil was trying to starve them. And when Enlil finds out to punish Enki for his mercy, Enlil decides that humanity should be punished with Enki's element. And because Enki is the god of water, Enlil plans to flood the earth. So Enlil says, You impose your lords on man. You bestowed noise on mankind. You slaughtered a god together with his intelligence. You must create a flood. It is indeed your power that shall be used against your people. Let us make far-sighted Enki swear an oath. So essentially, Enlil wants to make Enki promise to carry out the flood, that is, to make sure it happens, by not, for example, giving any humans advice on how to survive it. Enlil wants to ensure that no form of life will escape the flood. Enki made his voice heard and spoke to his brother gods. Why should you make me swear an oath? Why should I use my power against my people? The flood that you mentioned to me? What is it? I don't even know. Could I give birth to a flood? That is Enlil's type of work. The gods gave an explicit command. Enlil performed a bad deed to the people. So this text hints at the idea that you have no obligation to follow unjust laws. Oh, sick, yeah. <laughs> in some ways, Enki embodies the trickster archetype. But obviously in this context, his disobedience is heroic because he's saving human lives, even if he's rebuking the authority of the king of the gods. Yeah, it's for, it's for our benefit, so I like him. So meanwhile, Atrahasis has a dream, and he asks Enki to help him interpret it. Enki has technically promised not to tell any humans about the flood, but he found a loophole in his oath. There's no rule against talking to a wall. And if a human happens to overhear him talking to a wall, that's not his problem. You know what? This dude is really, you know, he's figuring it out. Enki made his voice heard and spoke to his servant. Wall, listen constantly to me. Reed hut, make sure you attend to all my words. Dismantle the house, build the boat, reject possessions, and save living things. The boat that you build, make upper decks and lower decks. The tackle must be very strong. The bitumen strong to give strength. I shall make rain fall on you here, a wealth of birds, a hamper of fish. You might recognize where the story is going. It was written about a thousand years before the book of Genesis, and it's far from the oldest flood story. Enki tells Atrahasis to plan for seven days and seven nights of rain, and Atrahasis and the humans start building a boat. The carpenter brought his axe. The reed worker brought his stone. A child brought bitumen. The poor fetched what was needed. He selected and put on board the birds that fly in the sky, 
cattle of Shikan, wild animal of open country. He invited his people to a feast. He put his family on board. They were eating, they were drinking, but he went in and out, could not stay still or rest on his haunches. His heart was breaking and he was vomiting bile. Oh, I, I do enjoy that they actually included, like, uh, nervousness in yeah, the story. right? It feels like a lot of that is kind of cut out from a lot of the myths we read through of just, like, you know, actual yeah. human emotion. But here this guy is uh, very nervous. Right, and yeah. I like the implication that they don't know what's happening, but he does. Yeah, 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 he hasn't told them. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, Which is funnier because it's like, why are we building this big-ass yeah. boat? The face of the weather changed. A dod bellowed from the clouds. When Atrahasis heard his noise, bitumen was brought, and he sealed his door. While he was closing up his door, a dod kept bellowing from the clouds. The winds were raging, even as he went up, and cut through the rope to release the boat. So, back in part one, we met the goddess Nintu, also called Mami, M-A-M-I, and Belet Ili. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the god's name is Mami. <laughs> so, Nintu is the goddess who made humans out of clay, in part one. Nintu also swore this oath, so she's also complicit in the destruction of humanity. Mm -hmm. And she begins to regret it. The goddess watched and wept, midwife of the gods, wise Mami. <laughs> <laughs> The goddess watched and wept, midwife of the gods, wise mommy. Sorry, 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 sorry. sorry. <laughs> we just don't say that last line. <laughs> the goddess watched and wept, midwife of the gods. Let daylight return. However could I, in the assembly of gods, have ordered such destruction with them? Enlil was strong enough to give a wicked order. He ought to have canceled that wicked order. I heard their cry leveled at me against myself, against my person. Beyond my control, my offspring have been sacrificed like white sheep. As for me, how am I to live in a house of bereavement? My noise has turned to silence. Would a true father have given birth to the rolling sea so that they could clog up the river like dragonflies? They are washed up like a raft on a bank in open country. I have seen and wept over them. Shall I ever finish weeping for them? So I think this is kind of a nice touch. Just as the gods punished humans with famine, in order to flood the human world, the gods have to give up their own access to water. So for the rest of the story, the gods are thirsty and like actively oh. suffering from want of water because all the water is on Earth. Oh, that's such a better story than they're gods and they don't have to worry about anything. Right. That's such a better narrative. Uh, so just like you can't create intelligence from scratch, you can't create a world-ending flood from scratch. Yeah. She wept. She gave vent to her feelings. Nintu wept and fueled her passions. The gods wept with her for the country. She was sated with grief. She longed for beer in vain. Uh, wise mommy could really use a beer right now. <laughs> Where she sat weeping, there the great gods sat too. But, like sheep, could only fill their windpipes with bleating. Thirsty as they were, their lips discharged only the rhyme of famine. For seven days and seven nights, the torrent, storm, and flood came on. So there is a huge gap in the text at this point. It looks like Atrahasis prepares a burnt offering and or maybe incense for the gods. Either way, it's a human action to feed the gods. The gods smelt the fragrance, gathered like flies over the offering. When they had eaten the offering, Nintu got up and blamed them all. Whatever came over Anu who makes the decisions, did Enlil dare to come for the smoke offering? Those two who did not deliberate but sent the flood gathered the people to catastrophe. You agreed to the destruction. Now their bright faces are dark forever. A lot of these lines are really good. Yeah. The dragonflies line was also very nice. Yeah. No, yeah, that especially, where the humans are clogging the river like dragonflies. Yeah. But also the gods are gathering like flies around the offering that oh. Atras has burned for them. Yeah. Then she went up to the big flies which Anu had made and declared before the gods. His grief is mine. My destiny goes with his. He must deliver me from evil and appease me. Let these flies be the lapis lazuli of my necklace, by which I may remember it daily, forever. 
Mm. It kind of reminds me of like how Christian and Catholic people wear a cross around their neck, just kind of as a symbol of what has been sacrificed. Ooh, I didn't even think of that. Yeah. Nice. So just as kind of a daily reminder. Yeah. Mm. Also comparing them to dragonflies, I think is very interesting because like to be a god and to look down on humans and to see the destruction, they must seem so tiny and so frail. Like these insect bodies who have been like washed by the current. I really like that visual in showing how defenseless these people are to this mm. godly flood. So we actually have necklaces of golden flies from Egypt made around the same time the story was written. It's not clear if they're related. Meanwhile, the warrior Enlil spotted the boat and was furious with the Igigi. We, the great Anuna, all of us, agreed together on an oath. No form of life should have escaped. How did any man survive the catastrophe? Enki made his voice heard and spoke to the great gods. I did it in defiance of you. I made sure life was preserved. Exact your punishment from the sinner. There's another break in the text. It ends with a god talking to Enlil, probably Enki, having made up with him. We sent the flood, but a man survived the catastrophe. You are the counselor of your gods. On your orders, I created conflict. Let the Igigi listen to this song in order to praise you, and let them record your greatness. I shall sing of the flood to all people. Listen. 